This is the OTP presented by Farm Bureau Health Plans. Plan on paying less for the coverage you need with Farm Bureau Health Plans. Get a quote today at FBHP.com. I'm Mike Keith, and our special guest on this edition of the OTP is Stefania Bell. Stefania is senior writer and injury analyst for ESPN, and she is one of our favorite people. Stefani, I have to ask you first and foremost about your Sundays in Bristol, Connecticut at ESPN. How busy are they and and how many different channels or whatever you want to call them in the ESPN empire are you involved with on a Sunday? Uh, well, Sundays are very busy. They start very early. I'm typically up at 5.30 or 6. And I'm quickly checking to see if Adam Schefter posted anything overnight in the hours that uh, most of us were sleeping because uh, I, he will have information from his sources sometimes on whether a player who's been questionable is going to go. And that's one of the things I'm usually waiting for. Um, and then I, sometimes I'm making calls to some of my sources on the way into work. So it really begins before I even get there. And then uh, starts early with makeup. Very important when you have television, <laughs> very important that you have other people doing it. And so I'm there at seven 30 for that. And then I, do a radio show. I do a hit on a show called Best Week Ever with Peter Burns and Courtney Cronin. And we talk about the top NFL injuries of the week. So go over to our radio studios for that. And then I come back and, you know, it's usually chatting with the producers. It's kind of fun because now that Sunday Countdown is back in Bristol, all of the folks are on Sunday Countdown. Uh, we're all kind of in the same room. And sometimes we're chatting about things that are coming up on Sunday that are of interest to all of us. And we kind of disperse to our different shows. And then I go to the studio for fantasy football now. And it's funny because we usually run on ESPN two from 10 to one. That's just kind of our home base. But uh, because we also televised formula one and sometimes Sundays, like this past Sunday at the New York city marathon, we will bounce around to ESPN news or whatever. And our, our fans are great because they do follow us. You know, they will switch the networks and tell us like they're following us from one place to the other. So um, we have a nice loyal group that is checking in. And I think if I dare to brag about it, we really do have a great um, show for people who care about not just fantasy football, but for football, because we talk to our reporters who are at different stadiums around the country who are giving us last minute information about uh, who's in and who's out, uh, what the, who's likely to play, you know, if there's some, a question about who's going to get a bigger workload on a given day, they're trying to gather that information for us. There's weather conditions that are going to impact the game. So I am biased because I'm on the show, but, but, but that's, um, I think it's a good watch if you're interested. And then after that, it's just everybody watches games. So pretty much glued to the TV and the, the injury reports in particular for me from one o'clock forward. Do you get calls or do you make calls during games as various injuries happen around the NFL? Uh, sometimes, you know, it's it's uh, it's tough because, you know, obviously HIPAA is very real. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't even 
try to reach out to medical contacts that I have because that's just not for me to do. And we have people who are insiders who do the reporting of injuries. But if I need clarification on something that's been reported or I want to make sure we're being accurate about something, uh, I will reach out and, and, and make calls at times to clarify things. Or sometimes I'm talking to people who I know are researching certain topics saying, hey, we're seeing X number of injuries and I want to look at taking a deeper dive on this and what kind of data do we have to support that. So um, there's a, a lot that's happening in terms of texts and emails and calls, but for a variety of topics, not necessarily just what happened to player X. Stefania, I imagine you feel a ton of responsibility because you mentioned HIPAA, but also informing your reporters and informing the public about what's what in certain things. There is a lot of responsibility in that, right? Absolutely. I, I take that very seriously. And, you know, it, it's funny because when I started this uh, injury analysis, as I I kind of coined that term because nobody was really doing it. And now if you look on the social platforms, there are a number of injury analysts and I'm very proud that, you know, there must've been something worth doing if other people are doing it now. And I think it's um, a reflection of the fact that people are interested in all sorts of information. I mean, it's 24 seven, as you well know. And so people want the latest information and unfortunately, with sports, all sports, but when you get to a collision sport like the NFL, there are going to be injuries. So naturally, it's a big topic. I care very much about accuracy. So you won't see me um, posting what I think has happened in a video. I understand that people want to know what we think right away. Uh, I'm certainly looking at it and I'm drawing my own conclusions, but I'm very reluctant to post what something could be because I think that you know, we're speculating. Um, the way you ev evaluate injuries, video can be a part of it, but there's certainly things that happen, the medical personnel and the player on the field that are key to understanding what the actual injury is. And then there's the imaging component, which of course we don't have access to. So when you see insiders like Adam Schefter, for example, reporting on injuries, he's talking to people who are close to the situation. And whether that's uh, player agents who are sharing information about their athlete because they want to get it out there, uh, or team personnel who are authorized to release certain information, and they are the ones who are reporting it. I always looked at my job as providing the analysis. But I do know when I hear things that don't sound quite correct, and so I will try to tease it out or if one of our reporters comes to me and says, hey, I'm hearing this, but I don't, I don't know if that's 100% accurate, I'll try and find out a little bit more to clarify. Um, because I do think that people want accurate information. And once something is out and it's being reported, uh, a lot more people are inclined to come forward and provide clarity uh, or more detail to make sure that what is out there is accurate. Titans fans, it's always game on with Duncan. So grab a coffee and kick off the action, whether that's drinking a cup of coffee on your way to the game or grabbing one to go before watching the game at home. Duncan is always there to help you get your game on. 
Just like the pros, we need to be at our best come game day, which is why Duncan is the most important part of your game day ritual, because it's always the best call for football. America runs on Duncan. Stefania, are Achilles injuries up this season, or does it just seem like it because high-profile players, including quarterbacks, have had the injury this season? Uh, It's a great question, and I feel like this is something we all fall victim to when we're watching (laughs) injuries happen in the middle of the season. It always feels like the worst we've ever seen the most we've ever seen. Uh, And it's hard in the moment to actually know if we're just having, we have that perception because there's some sort of recency bias and we're recalling these uh, or it's happening to high profile players, but without actual data, uh, we could be way off. And the NFL health and safety group does put together injury data and they provide injury metrics from across the years. And they have the exact data because when a player gets hurt, each club has to file that information in the electronic medical record. So there is a database where these injuries are being entered. And then the NFL health and safety group goes back and looks at the aggregate over a season and compares it to prior years. So that being said, I think the Achilles question is great because I'm getting that question all the time because we are seeing this and most recently with Kirk Cousins and then Cam Akers who tore the opposite Achilles after having a successful repair a few years ago. So I actually reached out um, to a source of mine who's with the NFL Health and Safety Committee and said that uh, found out the numbers were slightly up in the preseason for Achilles, but they have tapered off. So they compare preseason injuries to in-season injuries. And there are a lot of reasons why those are teased out, um, but they do tease them out. So in the preseason, the Achilles numbers were up slightly, and then they've tapered off in-season. And uh, the numbers they gave me were, at the past five years, the number of Achilles um, injuries per year hovers around 18 to 20. So, um, so far, we're only through nine weeks, um, we are consistent with on you know being on pace if you will to match a number in that range Aaron Rodgers Achilles began the focus of all of this he claims that he can potentially be back for the playoffs if the Jets make the postseason so to Stefania Bell does that make sense (laughs) based on what you know about the normal Achilles recovery uh, so here's it is a very complicated answer. Uh, the first thing I'll say is I never say never when it comes to an athlete's recovery. Uh, I think that you know being a physical therapist by trade and having rehab numerous athletes, I understand that it's a very different process for each and every one of them. And depending on their motivation level and depending on their unique set of circumstances, what their injury history is, what their overall health is, um, what, where they are in the seasonal calendar when the injury happens, these are all factors that go into recovery. And so um, I, I have just seen people bust timelines enough to know that you, you, you never say never, um, unless it's something extraordinary where somebody fractures a bone and playoff was the next week and you know they can't play on it, for example. Um, So in that regard, I would say, sure, Aaron Rodgers potentially could be back for the playoffs. 
But to, to actually look at realistically, there's a number of things you have to consider. There's basically three main parts to an Achilles recovery. One is the initial wound healing. That's critical. Uh, Achilles surgeries have a slightly higher risk uh, for infection because of the nature of the wound, although that has gotten better in recent years with the incisions getting smaller and some other things they're doing to help with early wound healing. So that's number one, because if you have an infection, your schedule is totally thrown off and you have to redo some things. Um, and then there's the healing of the tendon. And this is really the critical stage because while you need to introduce loading gradually because tendons, they, uh, they need to bear load and you have to start introducing that. You have to introduce ankle mobility so that you don't get a stiff joint. You have to work the other tissues around it. You have to maintain conditioning, but you can't overload the tendon while it's healing. Why? because the Achilles is responsible for spring. It's your spring, it's your jumper, right? And if you overstretch it, you will remove the elasticity from that tendon. And if you think about a rubber band, for example, that's been overstretched or an elastic waistband uh, in pants, when it's been overstretched, it's no good anymore. If you overstretch the Achilles too soon, you will disrupt the potential for it to have uh, that spring capacity, and then functionally, you won't ever be right again. Uh, so that is a really critical feature and why you can only move just so quickly through the tendon healing. But once the tendon is healed, and typically that takes anywhere from three to four months, uh, so in like the 12 to 16 week range, then you can get far more aggressive with return to sport. So if you do the math, that's kind of, that's kind of the overarching criteria for getting back to play. And if you look at the position of quarterback, which Aaron Rodgers plays, it's not like he's a wide receiver or defensive back that needs to be leaping in the air frequently. So it's a lower demand for him to get back. He's not a runner much anymore. Um, he's older. So he needs to be mobile enough to do what he needs to do in the pocket and to protect himself, to evade pressure he has to demonstrate that he can do those things to be able to play. It's also his lead leg that was injured. So it's not the leg he pushes off from uh, to drive the ball down the field. That also helps him. So if you look at all those things together, the demands for him to return aren't quite as much as they would be for somebody else. And if you allow for the healing time of the tendon, his injury was in September, it's possible he could make the playoffs. Will he be at 100%? Not likely. Uh, can he be functional and effective as a quarterback? That's the part that remains to be seen. So I understand him dangling that carrot for himself out there. It's, you've got to go through the rehab either way. So why not make that a goal and see if you can get there? Is there a particular type of injury this season that has Stefania Bell particularly concerned well, I think for the last couple of years, it's been the high ankle sprain because it can be so debilitating and uh, players will try to come back early. They try to push it to come back early and they really can't function like themselves. And we've seen this injury definitely be on the rise. And one of the ways that it seems to be induced more recently is this hip 
hip drop tackling technique. And uh, the NFL is actually looking at this. I raised the question a year ago because if you watch videos of how these injuries happen, and uh, you're in Tennessee, uh, Ryan Tannehill, uh, last year when he had the ankle surgery, you know, had the ankle injury that ultimately requires surgery, was uh, subject to one of these hip drop tackles where the weight of the defender sort of collapses through the hip forces the knee inward and the foot is planted and rotating outwards. And that is the mechanism for the high ankle sprain. And we see it um, over and over again. And the discussion point now is how do they better identify when a hip drop tackle is taking place? And then how do you teach away from it? Uh, it's, it's tough. I mean, I feel badly because I know that people on the defensive side of the ball and people who coach defensive players say you keep making it harder for us to do the job. And uh, I understand that, but you also look at the data and these high ankle sprains, if it's just a high ankle sprain on average, they're going to miss more than five games. So five games or more. If you look at the season, that's almost 30% of the season. Um, and if it's a more severe type injury, like Tony Pollard, who, had this injury as a result of the hip drop tackle uh, and it ends up fracturing the ankle and it can also end up spraining the knee an MCL injury. So these are not insignificant. And I think the discussion about how to move forward with that particular um, technique and trying to legislate away from that and still, you know, maintain the, the basic structure of the game, but also decrease these high ankle sprains. And, and that's not the only mechanism for them. Certainly, uh, turf and uh, the construct of different fields as well as footwear that's all being examined as well because players will talk about when their cleats don't release from the surface when they feel like they stuck and that can be a mechanism for all sorts of lower extremity injuries including a high ankle sprain. Stefania does it feel like soft tissue injuries have lessened in any way shape or form with all of the off-season focus that the NFL and all of the teams put on helping to try to prevent them? I think where we're seeing some improvement, but it's negligible so far is in the preseason. But I think that is not so much the off-season work uh, because players still, they disperse after mini camps and they have this six week period and they're doing very different things depending on the player and depending on what their situation is. Some come back to training camp in phenomenal shape. Others don't come back in as great of shape. And what the NFL and NFLPA realized was they had to put some parameters around the preseason work to try and acclimate guys to getting back to football shape. And so uh, there are these acclimation periods that happen on the first three days, I believe, of training camp. And then they happen again after pad, padded practices are introduced. But the idea being that we're going to ramp up the amount of time that uh, you can spend um, doing padded practices gradually. They ramp up the amount of football activity there is because it's one thing to be in great shape. Right, guys go and they can be working out and be in phenomenal shape, but there's still an adjustment to playing football. It's why we worry sometimes when players have been out with a holdout, for example, and, and haven't been in camp, you'll see them get worked in slowly. Or players coming off of injury who may have missed preseason workouts may be ramped 
up to football participation slowly where they're seeing a limited number of snaps when they return. I think that acclimation period is starting to pay off in terms of what they're seeing in preseason preseason injuries. And the question is, how do you then extrapolate some of that across the season? We've seen reduction in padded practices, but at some level you need to practice what you're going to participate in during the season. So you don't want that to completely go away, um, but it's a, it's a question of balance. The Titans are in the AFC South with the Indianapolis Colts, so we are certainly interested in them. Titans will play them again on December 3rd, and we will not see Anthony Richardson, who was ironically injured in the first Titans-Colts game back in early October. The shoulder injury started off as something that was being mentioned as a four-week injury, and then it quickly moved to season-ending surgery. Stefania, why did the Colts decide to move in that direction with Anthony Richardson's shoulder? Uh, well, I'm so glad you asked this question because it gives me a chance to make a shameless plug for uh, I, I just launched a YouTube show that we're starting out and it's on the uh, NFL on ESPN YouTube page. And the first episode I dedicated entirely to this topic of Anthony Richardson's injury and surgery and recovery. And in fact, I had Alex Smith, former NFL quarterback, Alex Smith, um, who I did the E60 documentary with uh, on because he actually had the same injury and a similar surgery when he was a young quarterback. So his perspective is very unique and I think people would find it interesting. But to give you a bit of the Reader's Digest version, um, AC sprains are, um, there are many, many different presentations of them. It's not like one size fits all. And when you get into the more significant injuries, uh, there's some question about do you treat it conservatively or do you treat it with surgery? And in Anthony Richardson's case, it sounds like at the beginning, there was some discussion about the conservative approach, you know, try rehab first. And if it doesn't work, um, then so be it. Or try conservative approach, see if he can come back and play. He consulted with multiple specialists. And ultimately, um, the decision was that the type of AC injury he had warranted surgery. And uh, the reason you can infer that is because they did go to surgery within about 10 days. And if they had wanted to try conservative approach first, that would have been about a six-week trial. So clearly the consensus was this needs to be fixed, uh, both for in the immediate sense and for the long-term health of his shoulder as a thrower. The good news is that um, these repairs tend to be very successful. We don't see it very often. In a quarterback, we just don't see it. We see AC sprains. Derek Carr had one this year, and he played the following week not that well, but he has been able to recover, as it were, while he's still participating. Anthony Richardson's injury required surgery to restore the anatomical alignment of the joint and to give him the best chance at a full recovery. But now I feel very, very good about him going forward when he comes back next season, he should be able to be making all his throws by June. Wow. What is your sense on the progress of limiting concussions in football as much as possible? Where do you think we stand on that right now? Well, this is another multi-layered topic. Um, I think uh, we're seeing improvements 
overall in the numbers. This is data that the NFL Health and Safety Group puts out, and I would encourage um, your listeners to go to the NFL Health and Safety page where they can actually see the data in terms of concussion numbers. Um, one of the things that has happened, there's, again, we talked about how preseason and in-season are different. One of the things that was introduced recently were the guardian caps. Those are those honeycombed looking shells that go over the helmets. And um, the NFL and the NFLPA jointly decided to introduce these guardian caps as a pilot program and wanted to see what would be the effect on you know, concussions during the preseason. So they had several position groups that were mandated to wear these, mostly players on the line, because what we've learned is that it's the sub-concussive uh, repeat um, blows, if you will, that uh, seem to put players most at risk for concussion injury. And so they wanted uh, these players who are doing repeated contact, repeated hits, to be in these caps. So it was players on the line and then also running backs uh, and I believe tight ends. And uh, what they saw was there was a significant drop in the number of concussions in the preseason for those position groups wearing the guardian caps. And recently the NFL held their uh, league meetings in October uh, in New York and I attended the health and safety briefing there. And once again, this year, uh, they have even further dropped the number of concussions during the preseason. So those position groups are wearing them in practice, and they're going to continue wearing them in practice throughout the season. So at the end of the season, they can look back and say, did we have an impact on concussions? As far as the numbers in season, um, it has gone down. Uh, this is one of the reasons that the competition committee has looked at some of the rule changes around kickoffs and so forth. Um, but uh, I can't really say to this year where they are because they don't share those numbers until the season is over and they can look back in retrospect. One of the topics with the guardian caps is wondering if this is going to be something ever that makes its way into the playing field. Um, that's one of many discussions they're having still a long ways off. But I think the idea of more players wearing them in practice uh, is certainly going to be a topic. And, you know, there are not as many contact practices once you get into the season. So this has really been a huge focus of the preseason. All right, so I want to wrap up by asking you about kickoffs specifically. Not surprisingly, kickoffs produce concussions at a much greater rate than the normal play. Touchbacks are way up in this league. Fair catches are available by rule this year. Uh, fewer kickoffs are being returned than ever before. Is this our new normal, or does Stefania Bell expect them to continue to tweak it towards looking at maybe eliminating the kickoff altogether? You're hitting on a point that's very, very topical right now, and I don't think any decisions have been made. I think this is why they gather the information that they do and then they go back and look at it year over year to see what kind of difference they're making or if there's a particular area within the game where these injuries are, stand, uh, you know, where they stand out. And the, the changes you just referenced are a result of that study. And uh, the, what, what they do, the NFL and the, the NFLPA, they have uh, committees that are looking at this 
They also have the engineers who go back and look at the concussive blow. So every time there's a concussion that's suffered in a game, um, it, it, there is a way of going back and looking at it. It used to be the engineers sat down and looked at everyone by hand, but they actually now this year, artificial intelligence being what it is, um, it goes much faster and can find all these injuries. And so it can detect where um, these concussive blows potentially occurred. Then, of course, the people go back and look at those videos in detail. But by studying that, they, you know, because the player sometimes doesn't know when it happened. I mean, we, we might know what happened on the play, or, for example, if it's during a kickoff, then it's fairly obvious it was during a kickoff. Um, but they can go back and look at these and then quantify them depending on where they're occurring and look for these kinds of trends. And that's they when they brought it to the competition committee in the past and, and the, the health and safety group really stresses this, that they bring the information to the competition committee and say, look, here's where the concussions are happening. Uh, discuss, you know? <laughs> and so it's not that they're mandating changes here, but they're showing them the information that says, look, if you want to make the game safer, we are finding that there is this one particular area where these injuries are happening at a much greater rate than everywhere else. And certainly there's all the other things that we've talked about in years past, you know, the heads up tackling, um, not, you know, that's why the pe penalty on a defenseless receiver is what it is. Uh, these are things where concussions have tended to spike. And so the focus for the penalties is going to be around those dangerous plays. And uh, sometimes it's tough because we see defensive penalties sometimes where we think that shouldn't have been called. But I think the tendency is going to be to err on the side of caution and it's not going to go the other way. My last question for Stefania Bell. The, the Eagles tush push, which they use on, on the quarterback sneak, there are a lot of people who do not think it is a football play and want it outlawed. They think it's a rugby play. From your standpoint, are you worried about it being a dangerous play? It's such a nuanced conversation. I really think it comes down to execution. I think what the Eagles have done is they have all the right bodies and the skill level of the players to be able to execute it. And Jalen Hurts is not a small quarterback either. When teams that don't practice it, don't use it very often, try and execute it, but they're not that great at it, and they perhaps don't have the personnel who can do it as well. And we've seen a couple teams try it when there's been a question about the quarterback's health, um, then you start to wonder if that isn't a risk versus reward proposition that is going in the negative direction. So um, I don't, I, I, I sort of see both sides. I don't have an issue with the play. I just don't. I feel like if it's something that a team does well, and they continue to have success at it, and other teams can't replicate it, of course they, they don't want them to be able to do it. But I do think that there is risk involved when it is not a well-calculated exercise. So um, it'll be interesting to see. I'm sure what's going to happen is this will become one of the types of plays that is studied to see is there injury fallout specifically related to this type of play. And if there is, that will go to the competition committee and enter into the conversation uh, 
which is not only about the injury risk, but whether other people feel like this is a justifiable uh, NFL play. Stefania, that is the greatest non-answer answer I've ever heard <laughs> in the history of an interview. You you have gone to the Hall of Fame right there. I tease, I tease. I'm sorry. It's, it's a very it's a very good answer. But you do, you do, because I I think the thing that all of us who watch and listen to you enjoy so much about you is it's obvious you love the game and you want to keep the spirit of the game forward but you also you 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 are certainly advocating for the athletes for health and safety and for making it the safest game possible and i I think that's a crossing that line and doing it in in as you like to say in that nuanced way is i think the reason why people respond to you in the way that they do well, very nice of you to say. I, w- I will say when we watch games on Sunday in the war room, it is sort of, we call it the war room, which is ridiculous. But when we watch games in there and there's a whole bunch of us football folks in there, people you would know who are on air, a lot of producers. I, mean, I will cringe at certain injury. We have all the games up and I'll be, I'll yell. I'll be like, oh no, why'd that, you know, why'd they hit the guy like that? Or I feel sorry for so-and-so. And these guys will give me a hard time and say, it's fine, it's football. Like, why? <laughs> I, I, I know, but I'm a physical therapist at heart and I don't, of course, I don't ever want to see anybody get hurt. And I understand as much as anybody that injuries are a part of the game. Um, I've been on the sidelines. I I have done football, the cared for football athletes, many of them in my time. I understand it's part of the game. When you have a collision sport, and I think of football and hockey and even and rugby, for sure, even though, um, you know, there's no helmets involved. That's a whole other conversation. But uh, these you're going to have injuries and we understand they're part of the game, but football is unique. I think in this sense of the size of the players, when you put the mass uh, and the acceleration, you know, is it the old physics equation, you know, force is mass times acceleration. I mean, you put the size of the bodies and the speed with which they travel. I mean, it didn't used to be, that 300 pound guys could fly like they do now. And so that is why we're seeing this concern about protecting the quarterback. And it's hard, but um, even though they used to get hurt before, they didn't get hit often with the same speed. Uh, And so the impact is what it is. The body is ultimately going to fail when it's confronted with those types of forces and, we want the we want players to be around for the bulk of the season. So we have to find a balance and it's probably never gonna make everyone happy, but I think it's still worth striving for to the extent that, that we can. Well you have made us happy by taking time with us. Stefania <laughs> Bell, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I so it's such an honor to be invited back. Thank you. We wrap up this edition of the OTP by reminding you that SeatGeek is now the official ticketing partner of the Tennessee Titans. If you haven't heard the name yet, get used to it because you'll be hearing it a lot more this season. Whether you're buying or selling tickets to the Titans games or to any live event in Nashville, SeatGeek is the place to do it. SeatGeek, the new official ticketing partner of the Tennessee Titans. So Titans fans and fans. I'm Mike Keith, and this is the OTP.